Welcome back, everybody, to Will Work for a Podcast. As always, I'm Daniel Thornton, and and with me is <laughs> and with me is Brendan Boland. <laughs> and uh, we're back, baby. We're back. We thought that we'd take this moment to kind of reflect on some of the things that we have done for ourselves professionally lately. And uh, so, Brendan, Brendan has something to present. What? Let me hit me with it. A friend of mine had this uh, work strategy team building retreat at his business. And so they did this thing from Gallup. It's called the uh, Clifton Strengths 34 Results Test. And it was funny because I was actually talking to my wife and apparently she had done a version of this, like a more simplified version of this before. And it, it, there's two packages. You could definitely do just your top five. It's 20 bucks. You can do $50 and it's like the whole thing. And the difference of that is, you know, the the top five will just tell you kind of like, here are your strengths, but their whole package, it is kind of interesting. Like it it, it digs down deep into Yes, like what are your strengths, but then also like what are your blind spots within those strengths as a way to like kind of, again, think about how you communicate with people, how that like ties into even like your sense of satisfaction or comfort. Uh, so for me, big surprise, the uh, I lead with relationship building. Like that's just like everything that that are in my strengths have to do with other people and and really kind of finding that that collaboration and that. Yeah, we've already talked about how you get energy from other people and like have that's what you feel is the best part of your jobs. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's, it's what I think is funny is it's it's more than just that, right? It's like it's about the nitty gritty ways of like how do you recognize strengths in others, and then how do you build teams around those strengths? Like that's what I do well, right? Like I get into a place. Um, so my top five, for instance, are like includer, meaning that like I bring everyone in, uh, strategic in that in the sense of like I understand and can like really work around all those different strengths, like I was saying. Um, connectedness. There's this one called Woo, which is what what I thought you'd laugh at. That has a lot more to do with like being the hype man. Yeah, making sure everyone feels good. Um, a ranger. There's a couple others, but like what I thought was kind of cool is, for instance, when it says others may view you as shallow and insincere because you connect with people quickly and then move on. In social situations, when you're talking with someone and have the urge to go to meet someone else, try to remember that some people may just be getting comfortable. That's an example of something that I'm like, cool, food for thought. When you were using this tool, like how did you how did you apply it? Why did you find useful about it? So that's a good question. And I think that's what I need to figure out next. There's some, there's some, you know, all I did recently was just take the test and look at some of the the results. There, there's follow-up that you can do either with their coaching staff or with somebody, or there's some follow-up that I could do. There's like uh, some recommended steps of like how to read through it. It like I said, it's it's pretty dense. So like at this point, I've only kind of done a quick glance. Like I definitely need to go back through what the reason I brought it into this conversation is like it is more complex and complete than the tools that we've tried previously. Yeah, I think it goes it goes beyond values. It goes beyond even strengths and really starts talking about the way that you think and the benefits of that and then the challenges of it. And I think I think one of the things that I like about this as opposed to others is the blind spots conversation because it's not just saying like here on the scale here are my weaknesses which I could already identify discipline big surprise is my weakest strength right and and so like cool I knew that but instead what it goes is like because of your strengths 
you may have these challenges. Mm. And what I think is really funny when I look at those, I can see it and I'm like, oh, oh, snap. Like I do do that. I definitely, I could, I, like as I'm reading them, I'm replaying moments where I'm like, oh, I did do that there. And that is something that maybe is a, like I just have to like, it's awareness, right? So what I like about this tool is it, it, it tells you how to lean into those things that you maybe already know about yourself that you want to, to highlight. But then it also says like, and then, and then be cautious because this might happen. Okay. No, I, I, I totally see that. That's a lot of things because especially those surface level tools can be very samesies without providing direction. So that's great. We're always building towards something in your profession. And sometimes you have to, well, wait, what did uh, Ediana say? Rejection is redirection. Remember, remember out there, rejection is redirection. That's what our friend of the show, Ediana, used to say. And that's always helping you build. So this, uh, this um, rejection letter comes from a competition from our, our great guest this week. Um, it's, it, it says, dear, dear Mr. Kalb, thank you very much for your application to the Malco Comp- Competition 2021. The international pre-jury has now finished the preliminary round and has video screened the 612 candidates who applied for the competition. It has been a, a tough challenge for the pre-jury as the level is very high among the candidates. Unfortunately, you're not among the selected 24 conductors who will be invited to participate in the competition. You can see the selected candidates here from March 3rd, and then it gives a, gives a link. The Malco competition staff wishes you good luck with your few, uh, further conducting career. Kindest regards, the person. I really like that rejection letter. It gives concrete, like, this is how many people applied, this is how many people we selected, and you can see the candidates that we selected right here, which obviously you could, could anyways, but just to let you know, like, this has, this has got all the information you need about feedback, so you can, like, kind of decipher Oh, look at these people's styles or whatever it may be. So I do enjoy that. Thank you for uh, giving us that rejection letter. We really appreciate it. And uh, on with the show. All right. Well, we'd like to welcome to the podcast, uh, Roberto Kalb. Um, He is a maestro. Yes, that's right. I said it. A maestro. Mexican-born conductor who has made multiple reviews over the 2021 and 22 season, season including uh, Compania Nacional de Opera at the Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. Um, he's won awards for being a maestro. He's awesome. We actually went to school together in high school. And I know everybody's like, how did, how, how, why did I end up like this? And he ended up like, and I'm like, like that. We'll, we'll find out right now. And uh, welcome to the show, Roberto. Thanks so much. It's it's great to be here. We usually use this segment as the name that jogs segment. So I'm just going to get straight into it. And we're just going to ask, like, how did you become a maestro? Like, what is the path of becoming a maestro? And tell, tell me the story. Tell me the story. Wow. So it's it was actually, um, I mean, now it seems like it was like a clear cut sort of path. But um, back then, I didn't really know uh exactly what i wanted to do so like when i was a kid you know i played piano since i was six um and i started playing in the middle school band when i was 12 and at that point i really i mean i loved music but i wasn't like i'm gonna be a conductor um it really changed when i was 12 or 13 
and um, I started um, one of uh, one of my friends in in algebra class. He brought in his disc man, and he had just you know the, remember the store in Palmas, the mix up store of the CDs. He'd just been to mix up, and he had bought the soundtrack to Harry Potter, the first movie. And he said, "Man, you have to listen to this." And I said, "Okay, well, you know, let me let me borrow your headphones." And I started to listen to a little bit, and I, it was like immediate love. You know, I just loved the music. I loved um, John Williams, of course, a legend. You know, um, and from that point forward, I said, "You know what? This is what I want to do. I want to write." music for film and I want to conduct those scores so that was like my goal since I was 12 13 um, and I got really lucky that um, one of the so the band teacher then Robert Peterman um, he actually really supported me and, and uh, he let me write some pieces for the band and uh, yeah and he like uh, he went on uh, some like a uh, trip for, uh, for work and he was gone for a couple of days and he said you know why don't you conduct the band when i'm gone um and so that was the first time i ever conducted a group and he taught me the patterns and then i i felt at home doing that since i was 12 really i felt i felt like that was i, I felt very comfortable leading a, a group of, of musicians yeah i mean i remember it so vividly i remember this 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 i remember this so vividly we were in a play together it was a musical we were at uh it was the um the, the christmas carol and i was talking to you and you said and i was like and we were we were getting older and like it was it was the end of high school and i i turned to you and i was and i said what do you want to do like what is your going to be your major your thing you're going to do and you turned to me with complete certainty and you said i'm going to be a maestro and i was like what what is that? And like, what, how are you so sure? And I just remember that moment in my mind. So clear. Yeah. So. Yeah. Totally. I remember that play too. It was, it was, I was playing Scrooge, the old Scrooge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, but so I, I said, you know, I was, I, I wanted to compose and I started composing all these things and um, compose and conduct. Oh, I always wanted to do that exactly like John Williams. And, um, but I didn't know if I was good enough. So when I was 17, I applied to Interlaken, the camp, and um, I got in with a scholarship. And when I was there, I, I sort of told myself, I mean, now looking back, I think it was like pretty mature for a 17 year old. But I, I thought like, I'm going to test my skill against these other people. Like if I can compete, then I'm really going to pursue this with, you know, 100 percent. And, uh, and I went there and I was really successful and I, I won, a, a, you know, the, whatever the top award was for, for the students at Interlochen. And um, when I came back to Mexico for senior year, I was more driven than ever. Um, so th then I went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music where I did my undergrad. Um, and back then I was still studying composition. So um, I always wanted to do, you know, side by side conducting and composition, but I thought it'd be good to get a degree in composition to sort of hone in the skill. Um, and I think maybe like six months or a year into it, I realized that I didn't want to write music for film anymore. Um, I had worked on an independent project, independent movie, and uh, I realized that the director really has, so, you know, such control over the music. I said, you know, I want to just write the music that I want to write. I don't want to be right. controlled. So uh, wait, okay, just stop for a second. How? What do you mean by I? I've, I don't know what it's like to compose music for a film. So like, 
and we'll probably get into this a little more about you being a maestro and how that that all functions but like what does that mean when this person who probably doesn't have a musical background can control the music yeah so i mean basically they um what what you get as a composer is a silent film um there's no music and sometimes there's not even dialogue because they're, they will dub it in later um and then so you sit with the director and you know it, it, it can be sort of there's some directors that are like very hands-on and they will say like i want this section to sound exactly like you know the tchaikovsky nutcracker suite i want it to sound exactly like wagner and i want this you know and so that's like the worst case scenario where they want it to sound like something um, but this director was actually really nice and he gave me, all, you know, a lot of freedom, but I remember very distinctly, he said for one of the scenes, the last scene, it was kind of like a tragic, it was a modern Romeo and Juliet sort of thing. Um, and in the last scene, he said, I want this, uh, this like five minutes of a film to have a soundtrack exactly like the soundtrack from, uh, Amelie, uh, Amelie, the, you know, the, the waltz sort of theme. And I thought, in my mind, I thought, no, that doesn't make any sense. Like it doesn't, it doesn't go well with the, you know, the visuals. But he was the director; it was his film, and I had to just compose something that would fit his needs. Um, and that really turned me off to the whole process. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to compose. I'm going to be a composer and conduct, and that's it. Okay. Um, so you've decided you're going to be a composer, conductor, and then yeah. you you move forward with that. Exactly. And then at the same time. Um, I wasn't getting enough uh, opportunities to conduct. So um, at the time, um, I was dating a, a singer and I would go to her voice lessons for fun. And I would go to all these like voice performance labs and, um, and I fell in love with opera. So um, I decided that I was going to organize my own concert. So I got an, an orchestra together and I got a group of my friends and we did sort of like a greatest hits of opera uh, concert. Um, and that's basically how I got my experience conducting in my undergrad. I would like get my friends together, you know, pay them with pizza and, <laughs> and uh, we would, we would uh, uh, perform. And uh, then little by little I became known, you know, like people knew that I could conduct well. So my composer friends would be like, hey, could you conduct the the world premiere of my piece? You know, could you conduct my piece for a recording session? Um, and then I got very busy conducting. Um, and so when I applied to my master's degree, I actually applied into conducting programs and composition programs simultaneously. And I wanted to do both. Um, but, you know, it's the way of the universe. You can't really plan too much. So, like, I ended up getting into a way better composition program than the conducting program I got into so I decided to go and still keep getting another degree in composition and then take private lessons with the conducting teacher at the University of Michigan um, so just just a point I have no idea about this world yeah so what's the difference between the composite I, I realize that composition is like composing music mm -hmm. but why why would there be this disconnect like why wouldn't you compose the music and then conduct it yeah. I guess why is there this like two different things? Yeah. So, so basically a composition degree, you, all the classes you take are geared towards you being able to write the music. Um, they're not going to train you to conduct your own music or to conduct anyone else's music. Um, 
in a conducting degree, actually the coursework is similar. Uh, you know, you have to study a lot of history, a lot of music theory, a lot of musicianship, but you're trained basically to conduct other people's music. So when you study conducting, you you learn how to you know conduct Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and modern repertoire. So it's um, you know it's actually the 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 doing thing part. You know, like the, the actual doing is different, but the the base work is very similar. So when I was getting all these composition degrees, uh, I was training myself to be a conductor as well. You know, um, I, I, all of the like musicology and, and music theory, all that stuff is pretty much the same thing. But you had to do this like on the side, like you had to <laughs> yeah. like basically yeah. do extra coursework in order to like keep up your comp uh, your composing skills. Yeah, exactly. My, my conducting because conducting. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was, I was getting the composition degree. Um, and it was, it's a tricky thing, you know, like back in the day, if you think, you know, famous composers like Mendelssohn, Brahms, Mahler, all these, you know, big deal composers, or even more recent, like Bernstein, these guys, uh, basically studied, uh, you know, either piano or whatever. They, they were great musicians and they were composers and conductors. And it was kind of like a similar thing. There wasn't like a big, big divide. They would write, like Mahler would write his symphonies in the summer and conduct year round other pieces. Um, but there seems in the modern era, there's a little bit of, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a thought that if you're a great conductor, then you're probably not great as a composer. And if you're a great composer, then you're probably not a great conductor. Um, so I actually I encountered a lot of that when I was a student. Like I was, I was getting a composition degree, so people didn't take my conducting as seriously. Um, and then as soon as I started getting a career in conducting, then you know people, you know my my compositions weren't getting played as much. You know, so it's just a, a weird thing. That's it's a modern phenomenon. I don't know why. Um, but so how did you? Uh, I mean, I, I we might get into this further, but like, yeah. how did you break that mold? I suppose. Well, <laughs> I don't know that I broke it. I, I sort of, I, I had to decide what I wanted to do. So, um, after my composition masters in Michigan, I went and I got, was getting a doctorate in composition at the New England Conservatory in Boston, <laughs> and and uh, I said, okay, whatever, I'll just study composition. And when I'm in Boston, I'm going to start my own orchestra. And then I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to conduct my own. I, I'm going to raise all the money. I'm going to do this. It was like a very ambitious project. It actually didn't pan out. But, um, but I got lucky because when I was in Boston, I uh, was assistant conductor uh, to a conductor named Stephen Lord, who was very impressed with my work and then hired me for my first professional job at Michigan Opera Theater. Um, so while I was still studying, uh, composition, I started working as a conductor. So I was, I was lucky in, the, in that way. Um, can I, can I just go back just for a second and yeah. ask how the hell do you start an orchestra? Like what is, <laughs> I know that it didn't pan out, but like, what's the process of this? What, what did you try? I, I, I don't even, I can't even fathom like what this, what, what this process must be. Well, it's, it's, a. Uh... It's very difficult, and uh, you have to, you have to, from the get go, you have to realize that it's not a business. So 
you know, it's a charity. It's, ba- it's basically a charity. There's no orchestra in the world that, you know, just makes money off of tickets. Um, you know, you have to have donors and especially in Europe, there's a, a lot of government sponsorship. Um, so, you know, my idea, I had this sort of very ambitious idea to commission uh, young composers every single concert set, which is unheard of. So let's say I wanted to do 20 concerts a year and 20 concert sets a year, which means like, you know, uh, every concert set, you will do three or four performances and every set has different repertoire. So in every one of them, I wanted to commission a new piece by a young composer and, you know, have your whatever, your Brahms, your Beethoven, your Strauss, whatever. Um, but, you know, but so in order to, to get that, you need a lot of money to commission composers um, and you need a lot of money to get the players. Uh, and so I, on the get go, I had this crazy, you know, four million dollar budget to start with, um, which is not. A, I mean, if you think about, you know, the Metropolitan Opera, you know, their budget is three hundred million dollars a year, which is, you know, a lot compared to this. But raising four million dollars is very, very difficult. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, it just takes a lot. You have to start the nonprofit. Uh, you have to. Um, you got to get the musicians, I guess. So. Yeah, but even before the musicians, you have to have enough money. <laughs> you know, you, you can't uh, announce the job posting before you have the money. So let's say if I would have had the money, then you would have, you know, announced the, the job opportunities repertoire. Um, and then you have to get a venue. You have to rent the venues because we weren't going to build a new theater, you know, $70 million theater. We were going to use some of the Boston theaters, which there's some very beautiful theaters, actually. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, a, it's very, very complicated. And, uh, mostly it, it, it didn't happen because I realized that there wasn't an interest from donors to do this kind of project. Um, they, they, they love their, you know, a lot of the people that I would have wanted to come on board were already donors to the Boston symphony, um, Boston lyric opera. They were more sort of traditionalists. They didn't really care about new music, um, but if you think back to the day of Beethoven, you know, when he premiered his third and fourth symphonies, it, there were other things on the program. It was like a three or four hour evening. And there was, you know, they played some Bach and they played, you know, all, you know other pieces. And, it was, and then he premiered his own thing. And that was ha- what happened back then. And I, I wanted to recreate that. You know, I wanted to, um, because I think today, you know, it's like, they give the new pieces like, oh, why don't you write an overture, you know, write a five minute overture and then they do a Brahms too. So it's like a little, like a little token. Like, like oh yeah. An, well, an appetizer. Yeah. They're just like, oh, you, here's a little snack. Yeah. And I always, I mean, you know, this is maybe a little blunt, but like, I just felt like uh, people, the orchestras back then, and I mean, even now we're just commissioning the wrong people. You know, they were commissioning these composers that were writing just music that was very, very um, unaccessible to to audiences. And of course, people came out of those concerts saying like, what is this new music? Uh, I'd rather, you know, listen to the the, uh, Vivaldi Four Seasons or whatever, you know, (laughs) like... The class, yeah. Why do I want to listen to this thing that sounds like the the score of The Shining? You know, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, I understood that. And it's not that I wanted to commission only people that wrote super safely and like, you know, I wanted. I thought there were a lot of people that weren't getting commissioned that should be commissioned. And I I believed with all my heart that that would bring a lot of audiences. 
So you so you tried this experiment trying to create this orchestra, you're mm-hmm. but you're still doing conducting mm-hmm. as professionally yeah. on the side. So like take us there after that. Yeah, so then so I got this gig assisting at Michigan Opera Theater and it was just coincidence because um I had applied and been accepted to get a doctorate. Another one, another How many one. degrees do you have, man? Well, Jesus. So All right. I have I, the sad thing is I never finished either of the doctorates. I was ABD on both and I, I, I was working so much I couldn't finish. But I mean luckily, but um but I, I got accepted to the doctorate at the University of Michigan with the teacher that I had studied privately with before. Um and so I said, Okay, whatever, you know, they'll pay me a stipend, they give me health insurance, I'll go. And while I was there, I was able to get this first professional gig at Michigan Opera Theater, which is in Detroit, like 40 minute drive from Ann Arbor. Um, and then from there, I just didn't stop working. So right after that job, I got the assistant conductor job at Opera Theater of St. Louis, uh, which is where I I really grew up professionally. I, I was there for six seasons um, and conducted all kinds of repertoire, um, modern, classic, Baroque, romantic, various modes, you know, all every kind of opera repertoire at the highest level because it's it's what they call an A house. You know, it has a, a big budget over ten million dollars. It's uh, the big leagues. It's the big leagues. It's the big leagues. It's the I get it. Leagues. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so the, then I was actually working as as a maestro. Um, and then I didn't have time to finish my doctorate or either, <laughs> either of them, either of them, because I was working, you know, all, all year. It seems like it turns out. Okay. It turned I mean, out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, um, so you're doing all, so are you composing during this time as well? Are you still composing or is it just like maestroing? I'm mostly maestroing now. Um, I'm, I haven't really composed in a while um the last thing i wrote i think was 20 like four or five years ago seriously i wrote a i I had a commission for a piano piece um and before i decided to not finish my doctorate at uh, the new england conservatory i was working on an opera it was like a huge project uh, based on uh, Federico Garcia Lorca's uh, Bodas de Sangre, Blood Weddings. And uh, I, the wonderful musicologist who teaches at NEC, Helen Greenwald, helped me write the libretto. Uh, and for those that, that don't know, that are listening, you know, usually operas have uh, some sort of uh, literary source, whether it's a play or a book or whatever. And then someone writes a libretto, which is the words that you set to music in an opera. And that's a very tricky process because you really need to condense uh, a lot of drama into few words. Um, because if not, you, it, the operas end up being overly wordy and long and boring. Um, but uh, so anyway, she helped me write this libretto and I had the libretto and I was composing. And then, you know, I just got so busy. And then I started just conducting uh, a lot. So... I literally do not know anything about being a conductor and maybe this will go into like the skills and tools that you need in order to be a successful conductor, but Mm -hmm. kind of go into that. Like, what does it, what, on your opinion, what does it take to be a conductor? What, what have you learned? What, like, what has this drawn out of you? I really want to know, like, what does, what does it take? Yeah. Um, 
so I, I think at the very uh, like basic element of it, you have to you have to be an excellent musician. So um, basically, the job is you study <laughs> a lot. You you spend your life studying scores and studying history and performance practice. So you you so in, in all my life I built up a skill set, right? So I was a pianist, I was a composer, so and I trained my ears and and I know harmony and theory and all these things, so that when I study a score, I can analyze what the composer intended. Because for a lot of these pieces, you have to remember that we only have a piece of paper. Um, and there's no, no other reference, no, no live, you know, Mozart can't, you know, call me and tell me how he wanted that to go. Right. Um, He can't tell you like, I wanted this note to be played really loud or whatever. Exactly. I mean, he can do sort of basics, right? In the score, he can tell me, okay, this should be loud, louder than this or softer than this, but he doesn't tell you exactly how much louder than this, or he does and especially music. Uh, Baroque and classical music, you know, they didn't write metronome numbers. So, you know, beats per minute, they would just write, you know, allegro or presto or adagio or lento, whatever, you know, all these markings that mean slow, fast, whatever, but you have to interpret. So all that skill set you, uh, you use when you're studying music and, and most of the work is just like studying. And then you are in front of an orchestra and you have to, show them with your physicality uh, primarily how you believe the Mozart or Beethoven or Brahms wanted that piece to go. Um, and so that, you know, that's part of it. And then you'll conduct, let's say you'll, through your motions, you're showing, and then the orchestra will play how they'll play. You know, they'll play and they'll respond to your gesture and they have whatever the level they have. And then your job is to react to their playing. So you say, you know, listen, uh, violins, this really should be softer than the violas because if not, we can't hear the viola melody. Or, um, you know, basses, make sure that you don't uh, pick up the tempo there because the violins have this very fast rhythm and they just, you know, they you need to listen to the violins or whatever it is, you know. And that all needs to fit, so the sound that you're getting from the orchestra needs to fit into the idea of the sound that you had in your mind. Um, And so that's basically, so the skill set is really, you need to be able to analyze the score really well and sort of interpret what the composer wanted. And then the other part of the skill is to apply all that knowledge in a rehearsal so that you can make the orchestra sound like what the vision is that you had in your mind of the piece. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Have you ever failed to accomplish that? And like, what did you learn from that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, there's a, a bunch of failures, um, especially um, starting out, you know, you, uh, when you have very little experience, um, th- then then it's tricky. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. I'm gonna, I'll give you two examples. One, one example, uh, I'll tell you, um, and this is with the same same orchestra. Um, just two different situations. So one, I'll tell you a success story and a failure story. Okay. So, so just so because it's good comparison, I think the the success story is my first season in, in St. Louis. Uh, 
I my job the first season was covering all the conductors. There's four different operas, and I was the guy that if the conductor gets sick, I would step in. Okay, so you never really think you're gonna step in because you know everyone's there and whatever. You know, um, but sure enough, before the uh, one of the dress rehearsals, with, which is with orchestra and everything, and there's an audience. Um, I got a call at nine in the morning and they said, hey, the conductor missed his flight and you have to conduct. So I, you know, my heart was racing and I ran to the theater and um, I conducted this piece called Ricardo Primo, which is a early, well, actually, like not early, like middle early Handel opera that's not done. It was like the US premiere of it. Okay. And so, you know, I went into the pit um for those that don't know a lot of, about opera, basically uh, the orchestra is in a, a pit um, in between the audience and the singers. And then the singers sing sort of over the orchestra. So you know, I went into the pit and I said hi to the orchestra. I said, I'm, I'm your conductor for the day. Um, and this is the St. Louis Symphony and they're, you know, they're one of the best symphonies in the US. Um, and I started conducting and... It was the first time that I had conducted a symphony of that caliber. And I realized that they were following my every gesture. Um, there was one passage that the conductor had asked the violins to, to play very short. And I made this gesture to sort of indicate that I wanted longer notes. And they immediately played longer notes. I mean, it was just kind of like magic, you know? It was like, truly, I felt like I was manipulating the sound with every single gesture so i mean that was like it was went great and i got rehired the next day i mean it was great um so and then fast forward two years later i stepped in for another performance and this was maybe like the sixth performance of of uh, an opera uh by mozart and uh i went into the pit i conducted the overture and it went quite well and as soon as i started the first duet I realized that the orchestra was just not with me. Like they, they um, I mean, they were playing together and they were sort of with me, but they weren't really responding. So for the next two hours and a half, I struggled. I, I mean, I, I pushed and pushed and put and, and, and I, at the end of it, I got some sort of result, but it was definitely sort of like a, <clears throat> not a, a positive experience. I felt like I struggled the whole night and the musical quality wasn't up to my standards, which are, you know, very, very high. Right. Um, and you can't like stop. It's not like you could say, hey, guys, we need to like reset this. No. Like you got to keep on going, right? So no, you can't. And, and, you know, in retrospect, um, now that I have a lot more experience, um, I think I pushed too much. Uh, you know, sometimes the more you push, the more they resist. Um, and I, I, in if I w could repeat it, I would so conduct more freely, more openly, with a little more air, um, in in the beat, to just to sort of uh, insinuate tempos rather than dictate. Um, and I've learned that that really helps. You know, if you, you sort of have more freedom in your beat, then people just move tempos, for example. Um, as opposed to dictation, which people just see like, well, what, what is he doing? You know, like, why is he just dictating um, so aggressively? Um, so, you know, that was kind of a failure, but I learned, I learned from it. Um, and then, you know, the performance was still very good, but it wasn't like um, not amazing. Right. So let me, so let me ask you this. What does, 
what does your life look like? What does a week in a life of a maestro like? I know I have asked people this a day and like most people are like, well, I can tell you what a week looks like. Yeah. So like, I don't know if you can give me that kind of sense. Like, mm-hmm. I guess I'm more asking like, how does this job look like? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have to talk to a lot of people. I'm just, I'm really fascinated. Yeah. So it sort of depends on what, um, if I'm in a production or a concert or I'm studying. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm studying a, a piece, then it's kind of like uh, <laughs> uh, the dream life. You know, I can wake up at 2 p.m. Doesn't matter. You know, like I, I, I can, and, but, but I, and I, I like to study at night. So, you know, I, I will fall asleep at 4 a.m. Um, so that basically the days where I'm, I'm studying, I study, um, I'll get a workout in, uh, you know, make dinner with my wife and then studies more and more and more. Um, so that's the studying. But when I'm in a production, um, those are sometimes, you know, you can have, uh, nine hour rehearsal days where, uh, they do like, um, they'll do like 10 to one, uh, stagings where basically, you'll have um so in opera productions before you even see the orchestra there's uh, weeks of um sort of acting and movement so you go into a room with all the singers and a pianist and you go through parts of the opera and they and the stage director will stage you know like uh, move here and this is your intention for the scene and you're conducting all of that and so th- those can be um, sort of long days where you only have, you know, an, an hour between sessions to eat or, um, and then that goes on for a couple of weeks. Um, and this is uh, mostly in new cities. So, um, I guess conduct, I'm don't have a permanent position at the moment, so I'm guest conducting. So, you know, I'll go to wherever I'm the next gig is, you know, I was just in Montpellier conducting or I you know, wherever, uh, and you are in your hotel room and then you go to the gig and you're there in the theater for 10 hours and then you come back and you, you know, repeat. And usually there's only one day off uh, a week, usually Sundays or Mondays. And then after all that, uh, so I should say that before all this staging, there's music rehearsals where you, you know, you, you coach the singers and all that. And then you have what's called the tech week where you move everything into the theater and then there's, you know, the lighting and uh, you ha- the singers have to adapt to the stage. And this is all still with piano. Um, and usually simultaneously, then you have sessions with the orchestra where there's no singers and you have two or three sessions with the orchestra. Then you bring in the singers, not on the stage. They call that a zitz proba. Um, and you have a couple of those. Uh, in an ideal world, you have a couple of those. And then uh, you join the orchestra and the singers on stage with the costumes. And usually you have one or two dress rehearsals and then you open the show. And so you're with them all throughout this process. All, all so, process, yeah. so I'm, I'm curious because you said the directors during movies have a lot of, a lot of um, uh, input into what the music is going to sound like, mm-hmm. but the director's, for operas don't because you're not the director right are you're you're not directing the opera you're just directing the orchestra yeah so it's yeah so i i don't have input into their physicality Mm. um i have an input 
into their musicality. Oh, so, so you do have like so when they're singing, you can tell them sing higher or lower. Or? Not higher or lower, unless they're singing out of tune. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know anything yeah. about music. No, no, I love all these questions, by the way. So you can ask me anything. Um, <laughs> but you, you can tell them, you know, you need really need to sing softer here, or you need to sing more here because you'll be covered by the orchestra. Maybe sing a little bit, a little bit early so you're heard, uh, really, or move the tempo here so that you don't fall behind the orchestra. Uh, maybe we want to phrase towards this moment instead of this moment. So you have a lot of um, a lot of uh, input. Um, there's a fascinating video. I mean, it's a very nerdy thing, but maybe some of your listeners would be interested in this. Um, I don't know exactly what the the YouTube video is called, but if you type in like beginning Beethoven Third Symphony, there's a, a video that's like it's a hundred different recordings of the beginning of Beethoven three, which starts with two uh, E flat chords, basically this bum, bum. <laughs> it's just, it's two chords, full orchestra forte, okay? And Beethoven only writes, you know, Allegro and the meter and the, the volume. <laughs> But every single one of these 100 recordings is different. Like the conductor, this, you know, can, have such an impact on the tempo, the volume, the phrasing. So it's like if you if you buy a recording of you know La Boheme or La Traviata, every single recording can be very different. Um, I, I mean, I think that's the big difference between pop music and and classical music, where the really the interpretation changes time you know every time. I mean, if you go and watch Christina Aguilera in you know, some major venue, pretty much the the song she's going to sing will sound really, really similar to that CD you have in your car. Right. Oh, I'm so, I just aged myself, you know. That, uh, whatever, <laughs> it's all good, that it's Spotify all good. We're old. It's track. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but in classical music, it really changes. The conductor has a huge, huge influence on on how the orchestra sounds, how they play, the tempo they play, the volume, the all that. Right. And so it's fascinating. So we know all these composers are like, and also maestros like Beethoven, Bach, all these guys mm -hmm. that were all from way back when. Yeah. So do we know, like, and you just said John Williams. I was like, I know who that is, mm -hmm. obviously, because he's a composer for film. And also you have to be like a super big composer in a Because now there's, um, oh, now I can't even remember his name. He does all the like Christopher Nolan films, and so yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but but yes, he. So I my question to this is more of who is are is there a lot of new voices in the opera and composing and conducting scene? I'm I'm not. Yeah, even... yeah, yeah. I think you were you were you were thinking of Hans Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there's a lot of new composers. And there, there's a lot of great new composers. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm conducting. I'm actually, I can't officially tell you. I'm conducting um, a, a world premiere uh, by a very, very good uh, composer, very successful. Um, and and the, I conducted. Um, I'm I, this. I can't tell you. I'm conducting a piece called Awakenings by Tobias Picker. And Tobias Picker is a very important uh, and successful American 
composer. Uh, you know, John Adams, a very famous uh, living composer. Um, and so, you know, there's and there's a bunch of young composers writing very, very good music. Um, and it's very active. I just think that it doesn't get as much press, unfortunately. Mm. But uh, so how do you get into that stuff? Like, I, mm. I guess a lot of people who would probably be listening to this is like, oh, opera, classical music. That's the thing where... You know, mm-hmm. I don't like that because it's not more like I'm more. How? Do, what yeah. do you think as are accessible pieces? I guess is my question. Well, I mean, uh, you you just it's kind of like you need to. Um, it's like if you love wine, mm-hmm. and which I do, and, uh, <laughs> and of course you do. You're a maestro. Come yeah. on, <laughs> it's like if if you say, oh well, how am I going to discover wine? Well, then go to a wine shop and ask the wine owner, you know, what is good wine, you know, and the same thing, like, uh, if you don't know classical music, ask me or ask uh, whichever musician, you know, like, what should I listen to? Um, I mean, I can now if people are listening, I can recommend, you know, there's, there's uh, most of the things by John Adams are really great and accessible. If you're interested in accessible opera. Um, uh, Ricky Ian Gordon writes uh, very beautiful music. Um, uh, Tobias Picker. Um, th- I mean, there's just I, I, and if you go on uh, on Spotify and type their names, and then they're going to suggest other things for you. Uh, Mizzy Mazzoli is writing very very beautiful stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot out there. Um, and I'm always happy to, to to share recommendations. But I would say, you know, don't be shy about asking musicians uh, these things. You know, I, I, I love when people ask me questions and people always, uh, you know, start with, you know, I, oh, this must be such a stupid question. No, I like I always I love answering every single question. Like, <laughs> you know, even when people ask me, like, why do you wave this stick around? You know, they don't. And I. You know, people just don't don't know. You know, like, and and I I love answering that sort of question. But I would encourage people to to go and go to a concert. Like, there's this stigma of um, the opera and uh, symphonies being like stuffy and for only rich people or whatever. Um, and I think you know we've we've been sort of taught that with you know the movies and cartoons and the bugs bunny tales and the you know the the viking horns for the soprano or whatever um but i always tell people you know if you live in a big city and not even a big city but if you live in a major city just go any day of the week any weekend and look up if there's a concert and go in jeans and a jacket, you know, like you don't have to dress up, you know, you don't have to just go whatever they're playing, go get a cheap ticket, get 20 bucks, 30 bucks t- uh, ticket and just go. And then you'll, you might like something on the program and then Google it. And then, I mean, it just takes a little bit of initiative um, to just go. There's, it's not stuffy. We love to have people in the audience. That's what we want the most. Um, so, so yeah. it's interesting you say that too, because, and you talked about stigma, because when it comes to maitros and conductors, we have this stigma of whiplash <laughs> and uh, all these things are in like Mozart in the jungle. And I'm just naming like yeah. movies and shows of where the composer is like this crazy person who throws 
stuff at the uh, orchestra and just like demands all of this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, have you run into that stigma and how have you, I guess, tried to break it down and, mm -hmm. you know, what is the reality? Well, okay. So that stigma exists because it, it really used to be that way. Um, so there, there's a famous, uh, conductor who, um, well, he's, he's died a long time ago, but his name is Toscanini, Arturo Toscanini. And he was famous maestro, uh, from Italy. And, uh, he later came to the U S and, and was the conductor of the NBC orchestra, which was a, a leading recording symphony. And he, I this is another fun uh, uh, YouTube project if people are, are interested. You, you can Google, like, not Google, like YouTube, Toscanini yelling or Toscanini rehearsals. And he just, you know, destroys the orchestras, yells at them in, in Italian and cursing. And, you know, why are you, you know, just a horrible tyrant. And, the, you know, this was kind of the norm back, you know, in the 20s and 30s. Um, but now you know the the conductor is is more of a um, um collaborator you know there's still some conductors that are obnoxious and really you know like they want to be dictators but mostly yes you're a leader but you know you sort of enable musicians to perform their best you enable singers to to sing their best and um i've i've found the moment and and I really don't do lose my temper, but like the moment I let myself go there, the, the musicians already lose respect for you. Um, and I found that through patience, uh, I get everything I want. Pe I mean, people t tell me, "Oh, you're so nice in rehearsal." Yeah, I have no, I have no reason to not be nice. I know I have, I'm not insecure. You know, like usually when conductors are insecure, they don't know their music. They're they they attack the orchestra. Um, but you know, I. I know my stuff and I know I'm going to get the result I want eventually. You know, that's my thing. Like, I'm just so persistent. If something's not going the way I want it, I just repeat and I'm kind, but I still, I won't let it go. <laughs> and then I end up getting what I want at the end of the day through just being a collaborator. I don't, I don't, I don't need to be a dictator. Um, but th there is this sort of stigma of the, the maestro, whatever. But um, I think that, it's changed in the last 30, 40 years where the conductor really it's the conductor is not a dictator in the way that, that they were a hundred years ago. So do these musicians, are they your friends? Like what is your relationship with the orchestra? Do you see them more as your, like you're their you're their teacher. So you <laughs> like, I guess in a workspace, it's a workspace. So like, do you yeah. fraternize with them or is it more of like, you're the boss? I'm not really sure. Yeah. Well, it's a tricky thing, right? So um, you, I'm friendly. I'm friendly with my colleagues, um, but I'm not necessarily buddies. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going out drinking with the orchestra. I mean, you know, it just depends. Uh, it depends. Obviously, in, in a rehearsal setting, then it's really kind of like a work, you know, you so in the break, yeah, you can chat, whatever. But when the rehearsal is happening, then there's a clear, you know, delineation of like, you know, the the conductor will lead the rehearsal and will, you know, th that sort of stuff. But after, you know, I, uh, in my six years in St. Louis, I, I built some, you know, wonderful friendships with the players, and and we would 
go up and have you know a few glasses of champagne in the after you know after the the show and and chit chat and i think that that's healthy and fine the same as it would be in in any corporation you know where you you have your your christmas party and you're chatting with with everyone in the office it's it's a sort of similar similar sort of thing so, interesting so, so when they i I'm trying to ask this question. I have no idea how to ask it. Yeah. Essentially, like, where's the job postings for <laughs> for conductors? Like, do you do you good? Do you go on LinkedIn or do you, <laughs> is it on what I, I like? I I don't understand how they find conductors. Yeah. Like, is there a job post where they say must be able to wave wand really well? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish it were that easy. Um, <laughs> I, it's a very good question. Uh, there are many ways to to sort of make a career. Well, many ways. There's a few ways to to make a career um, and to find jobs. Mostly, um, there's like a sort of like a track sort of thing. So, like you, usually, uh, conductors will have conducting degrees, and before that, they'll have a piano degree or a composition degree or some sort of instrumental background. And when they're out of school. If they want to sort of go like the symphonic path, um, they start applying uh, to assistant conductor jobs in symphonies. And usually there are posting, there's websites um, that that uh, that post these jobs. And I, I have to tell you that, um, let's say Omaha Symphony, random, Omaha Symphony is looking for an assistant conductor. So they'll post... And then for that post, they'll get about, I don't know, 700 applications, okay? From those applications, they will take it down to about 20. And from those 20, they might do phone interviews. And then they'll invite uh, five to eight to come and audition live with the orchestra. And out of those five to eight, they'll only choose one. And these jobs are not uh, don't come out often, <laughs> so it's incredibly competitive. You know, it's um, I I tell people like if you if it's not your passion, like complete passion, and you can't think of doing anything else, you you know, do anything else other than this because it's <laughs> it's really so competitive. Um, and then, so let's say you might land that assistant gig, and then. They'll give you a few concerts, and then little by little, you might jump to another orchestra, a better orchestra, and assist there. You'll learn a lot of repertoire, and then um, maybe five years down the line or ten years, you will be up for maybe being a music director at a symphony, and you sort of like climb the ladder that way. Um, another way is uh, competitions, so you will. Uh, send in your videos and your resume and then you hope that out of the 800 you're one of the 40 chosen ones to start the first round of a competition then in the you know they cut it down to 20 then 10 whatever and then they give prizes and if it's a major competition then there will be members of uh, different symphony orchestras and opera houses watching the competition and they might engage you to perform um it, it, so that's another way um and usually, I mean, it's really networking. Um, you know, you, you have to really be active on, on social media and all this stuff. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very competitive and it's, there's no like clear cut way. It's not like, you know, you go into a corporation and start pushing paper and then you climb the ladder. It's not quite like that. Um, and then it I, you seems know, like the yeah. brickiest thing is like getting in, but once you're in and like, you can show your skills, you can kind of ascend from there. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. but the biggest thing is breaking in, breaking in. And I, I will tell you that. You know, I, I'm. I think I'm very lucky and I'm, I'm successful, whatever. But if you saw the amount of rejection that I received uh, in the beginning of my career, you would not believe. I mean, I I've probably sent I don't know 300 applications, and and so many of them were rejected, even without an audition. Uh, the the great majority of them, actually. Um, and you know, so eventually, you know, like you say, once you're in the door, then you know maybe you're getting work and then you get management and then the management helps you get more engagements and all these things. Um, but to really be successful conducting, it takes, it's, you have to be very lucky and you have to be good enough that when the opportunity is there, you really take the opportunity and you do well. Yeah. That that's, that's key. Uh, because I'm, a, the, I'm assuming you only get like one shot essentially. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, it's like if, if I would have, uh, you know, really bombed that uh, time that I had to step in in St. Louis. Maybe they wouldn't have hired me the next year, and then you know what was I going to do? Um, but you, I, I took the opportunity and I did well with it. Uh, so you really have to have that sort of. It's it's not a, you know, it's it's a very stressful profession. Uh, it, it really is, but it's the most wonderful profession. You know, when it's great, it's the best thing in the world. But um, actually, it's the in between. It's horrible, the, 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 like not doing, and especially in the pandemic. You know, that was for us. It was I mean, for everyone. It was horrible, but for performing artists, it was really, really bad because we lost. I mean, at least my my wife. My wife is a soprano, um, and. Uh, between her and I, we lost a full year of work. Um, right. Well, we'll go into that now. And so from that perspective of the performing arts, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, we're, we're trying to get post pandemic. We're not there yet, yeah. but do you, you know, people want to go back to events. I mean, look at all the stadiums that I'm sure, or like the sports sporting events that are trying to get back up and running or are running, yeah. you know, people want to go out and do things. Do you, feel that like are people I, I don't know I'm sure you've also seen this in your industry like some orchestras probably didn't make it through the pandemic yeah. and so how are how are the performing arts responding in your in your um view? I've seen I've seen both sides of it so I think in Europe I've seen a very positive side where people were just so eager to get back into the audience and everything sold out, you know, that people just want to go back to the symphonies. I was in Berlin uh, like a month ago and we, I went to a Berlin Phil concert. I could barely get a ticket um, and it was packed. It was young people. It was amazing. Uh, really nice uh, COVID protocol. You know, they just check your vaccine. People are respectful and they're wearing masks. Um, and then I see the other part of it where... Uh, in the U.S., it's it's trickier. Uh, people are more uh, afraid to go back. It's an older um, age group that goes to symphony concerts and opera in the U.S., so they're more afraid for their health. Um, I mean, I was speaking to 
one of the the directors of a big institution in Florida, and she was saying that um, even her major donors uh, said, you know, even if everyone's vaccinated and they're masked, I don't feel comfortable being in a, in a space, in a closed space, um, which is, you know, I, I, there, there's some of that, but uh, I, I think, you know, I'm, a li- I'm encouraged that, that uh, I get the vibe, at least here in Europe, that that people are are really eager to come back to the to the performances um but it's uh yeah like you said a lot of you know some institutions uh had to fold and then a lot of people for example in the metropolitan opera uh in new york they uh the orchestra musicians weren't paid for a really long time um it was a very controversial um but now they're back they're back and they've been selling pretty well. At least one of the shows that they they opened up, they sold pretty well. Um, so that it's it's hard to tell. Um, at least for me, there's a few there are a few engagements that were postponed that haven't happened. So like when you introduced me, you said that I was going to conduct in Bellas Artes. So that was going to be in twenty yeah twenty twenty. And then that got pushed to the spring of 2021, then to the fall, and then now it's pushed to the next year. Uh, so it, it's uh, still we're still getting the the effects of the virus, um, and and we have it good. You know, I have I'm, I'm very lucky. Some of my contracts, you know, they at least they paid me out half. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, there's this uh, force majeure clause in the contract that says, you know, any sort of catastrophe, disaster, pandemic, whatever, then we pay you zero. Yeah, because um, you're a contractor, essentially, exactly, as a conductor. Yeah. Exactly, you're an independent contractor. And um, I mean, my wife had a few contracts like that where they paid her zero. Mm. Um, I was luckier. I was luckier. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, no, that's that's not great. I'm glad that you guys have been able to survive the the pandemic. That's that's really sucks. And I can imagine that musicians, because like you said, most musicians are contractors and they can't get like in unemployment benefits when these things fold. Yeah. Um, so it's terrible that what's uh, what's been going on with that. But um, great. Uh, but I. I wanted to I wanted to end on the most important question, yeah. and that is, do you get called maestro in social settings? <laughs> this is uh, this is funny because there's that famous uh, Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I prepared for this interview by watching that episode. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. Um, and the, the the funny thing about that is, then the guy in the episode conducts like you know like the state community band of the you know like Ro- Rochester or something. <laughs> um, you know, I I sometimes I do get called maestro in social settings, um, and it but it's usually you know people that I'm working with that are you know like a young singers or like uh, I just met an orchestra member and they they don't know me well yet. So, I mean, usually I, I say I'm Roberto, you know, they, I mean, anyone can call me Roberto, you know, even in some rehearsals, some orchestra members that know me well, so Roberto, it's fine. Um, it, you know, in the rehearsal setting, it's kind of like, I'll say like, oh, you know, first oboe, you know, please a little bit louder, you know, double basses, you know, and it's kind of like a designation of, of what your role is. Um, and so they just naturally will say, you know, maestro, do you want this louder, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
but yeah, sometimes in social settings, but not, I just tell people to call me, to call me Roberto. I think it's ridiculous. It's like, it's, ridiculous. are there, are there maestros who t- tell people to call them maestro? Cause I really want that to be true. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I haven't met one. Uh, <laughs> I haven't, you ah, could, God. but you know, what's, it's hard for me. And I, I think maybe I mean, you can, uh, uh, sympathize with us because you also lived in Mexico and um, the 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 people that I call maestro I have a really hard time calling by their first name you know so even even people that um, like I'm I'm going to visit this conductor that I assisted conducted in Toronto like five years ago I'm gonna go see one of his shows in Spain in a few weeks and I I cannot bring myself to call him by his first name. I just and he and he keeps you know sending me texts and at the end he says you know Corrado you know, and I say, uh, thank you so much, maestro. I just can't I can't bring myself because you know I just have it's a, a sort of a sign of respect and it's he, he's one of my mentors yeah and so he's older so it, it's it's very tricky for me but some people don't care you know some people just say their names and they don't care. I really wish there was a guy that just like had a, who just insisted that they call him maestro. It's a cultural um, thing too, you know. Like in Italy, they call everyone maestro. Not even not just the conductor, the like the pianists and the course masters. Everyone's a maestro, maestro, and even the the maestro will call those people maestro. So, which is funny when I first met this maestro that I was just talking about. He called me maestro, which was very interesting. <laughs> Well, that's great. Uh, well, not not everything I hope for, but I, I'm glad that at least sometimes people call you maestro. And uh, I'm definitely going to call you maestro when I see you again in person because I just have to. Um, but I wanted to, seeing as how we had kind of a discussion about how can people get more into classical music yeah. and opera, give you a space to, fi- to to say where can people find you and if you have some recommendations like you've already had before mm-hmm. um, or have any other thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. So, um, well, people can find me on social media. So Roberto, just Google, you know, Roberto Kalb, K-A-L-B, or you can go on my website and robertocalb.com and there's a, like a social media page. So you can, you know, add me on Instagram and, and Facebook or whatever. Um, and I usually try to post stuff that's um uh cool music stuff um i'm gonna post something later today actually um and i've actually i've been meaning to to start posting uh stories that are about uncommon uh classical piece music that you know pieces that people won't know um so you know if people add me then then uh they'll sort of get into things that they might not normally get into um but I will recommend um, there is a, a Berlin Philharmonic uh, digital concert hall. So if you go, I think you can just Google it, just like Berlin Philharmonic digital concert hall. And I think it's about 14 bucks or 12 bucks a month. I mean, it's not super cheap, but you can have access to all of their video archives. It's the best orchestra in the world. And the video quality is incredible. So I would just go there and explore. Just listen to whatever. If you like Mozart, start with Mozart, but listen to the other things on the program. Um, If you are more into opera or want to get into opera, 
Um, there's also the Metropolitan Opera Player. And that's an, uh, another subscription thing. I think it's nine bucks a month or something like that. And I also recommend that. And um, the uh, people also get scared of opera because they think it's in another language. But usually, I mean, yeah, most of the time it's in another language. But usually, uh, 99% of the time when you go to the theater, there's uh, surtitles where they have it in English. And oh, yeah. So, so you can follow the story. I mean, people think opera, I think people think opera is this like uh, stuffy, boring thing, but it's so entertaining. It's like, it's like watching a show on Netflix, you know? Um, uh, okay, so a specific recommendation. Uh, get a Met subscription and listen to an opera called L'Elisir d'Amore, The Elixir of Love by Donizetti. And... This opera is like a rom-com. Like, you know, the guy likes the girl. The girl doesn't like the guy. But later on, she realizes that, you know, he actually is the guy for her. And it's so funny. The music is beautiful. Um, I mean, that would be like, if you have never listened to an opera, go. You can also uh, go and listen to that and put on the, the CC and that they'll it'll be in English. The opera is in Italian, but you can... Um, you can follow along in English. Um, and it's super important that you follow along in English. It's In opera, you have to know what they're saying. If not, it's super boring. It's just like they're opening their mouths. Um, and if it, another recommendation, um, there's an opera by Puccini called La Boheme. And it's super famous. And I mean, you can also go on YouTube and look up like, L'Elisir d'Amore complete and it'll be the complete opera just make sure that there's a translation or Puccini La Boheme complete in YouTube and usually there's free um, you know you can find the whole thing for free I'm just recommending the other services because it's really high quality you know it's 4k the sound is impeccable it's the best singers in the world the best orchestra in the world I mean just I would really recommend do it for one month. Okay, you okay? It's two lattes at Starbucks, whatever you know. Just, <laughs> I really recommend. And then once you do that, if you live like in DC, for example, you know you you say, oh well, I, I loved this Mozart piece. Let's see what the National Symphony is playing this weekend. Um, and the National Symphony is one of the best orchestras in the world. And there's Washington National Opera, one of the best opera houses in the world. You know, there's. If you're in a big city in the U.S., there's there's no excuse. You know, Chicago, Chicago Lyric Opera, Chicago Symphony. Then is there New York Phil, Metropolitan Opera. If you're in the West Coast, San Francisco Symphony, San Francisco Opera, L.A., L.A. Opera. LA, you know, there's like all over the country. There's really great institutions. Well, thank you so much for all those recommendations, Roberto. I think you've opened our minds, and I think that's a perfect way to end this broadcast. It's it's my pleasure, and it's, it's great to, to talk with you after... What did we say? It was like two decades or something. <laughs> Too long. We're going to be dating ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, hopefully uh, next time uh, I'm in DC, we can we can chat in person. It'd be great. Yeah. So what you think, or what what was your takeaway? I really appreciate this this new segment that we're doing with Name That Job because, like Dan Peluso, who helped us understand the very the complexities of being an astrophysicist. This, uh, you know, Roberto helped us understand the complexities of being a, con uh, a conductor. And it's just really interesting to like hear these conversations and really get into the complexities about that and really understand, 
you know, that you need to make personal choices and that these things aren't a monolith. Yeah. In every, in every industry, right. There's definitely, there's the public facing piece that I think we readily identify. And then there's like a lot that goes beyond that. And so like, I think that the people that feel the most satisfaction are those that have really like carved that space for themselves. We're definitely going to put up that list and, and those artists that he said are entry level into this space. So I'm really, I really appreciate all of the information he shared. Remember guys like follow subscribe. Uh, we're on all the platforms, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, it, whatever platform is we're there. And until the next time we'll be working for you and uh, peace out. Peace out.